Welcome to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm, a weekly podcast that brings biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and put into practice. I'm your host, Gwen DeSelm, and I'm so glad that you've joined me today. Our teacher is Dave DeSelm. Dave spent over 40 years in pastoral ministry, planting, growing, and leading a church. Today, he is the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering resources for everyday pastors and the people they lead, such as a blog, devotionals, individual and group coaching, speaking, and more. You can find out more about us at davedesomeministries.org. As we continue our series from the book of Ephesians, we come to some of the most miraculous, hope-filled, life-changing verses in the whole epistle. They're like a spiritual before and after picture, showing the difference Christ can make in a life. As you listen today, if this message stirs in you a desire to know more about how you can have that kind of relationship with Jesus, we would love to have the opportunity to talk to you about it. Just send us an email at dave at davedeselministries.org. And let's start that conversation. Here's Dave with the message, Dead or Alive? Let's take our Bibles in hand, shall we? And open them up once again to the New Testament book of Ephesians. We're making our way through this remarkable book, uh, which is in fact a letter. This is a literal letter written by a real guy to some real friends. The Apostle Paul had planted a church in the key city in the province of Asia. And against all odds, in that pagan city, this church springs up. These believers are now four years old as Christians, and Paul writes them a letter. What's remarkable is, unlike most of his letters, which were written to answer a question or solve a crisis, this was not written for that reason. He writes not to correct some wrong doctrine, not to referee any disagreement, not to refute any false teachers, but to remind his friends of who they were in Christ, and out of that, how they could make a difference for Christ. That's what Ephesians is about in a nutshell. And by way of review, and I shared some of this with you a few weeks back, the book of Ephesians is a brilliant treatise that can be divided into two parts. First three chapters, second three chapters. The first three chapters are quite doctrinal in scope. The second three are quite practical. Put another way, the first three chapters focus on your belief. And the second three, on how you should behave in light of that belief. One more point. The first three explain our identity, what God has done for us, and the second three speak about our responsibility, what we're supposed to do for God in light of what he's done for us. It's a great picture. Belief, then behavior. Identity, then responsibility. The doctrinal, then the practical. Now, as we begin chapter 2, Paul continues on with this, and he wants to dig a little bit deeper into just who you are, but in order to underscore this in our thinking, he makes it very clear who you once were. Clarity comes by way of remarkable contrast. I read this past week, uh, a pastor named Kent Hughes describes an occasion when he took a group of high schoolers to hike to the top of Mount Whitney in California. Have any of you ever been to Mount Whitney before? I didn't know this, but Mount Whitney is the highest mountain in the continental United States, the highest point, 14,494 feet. 
So these young people get to the top of Mount Whitney and they look around and the panorama of the Sierra Nevada mountains around them. In the distance, they can see the Mojave Desert. Then their guide says to them that only 80 miles away is Death Valley. You stop and think about it. In less than 100 miles, a person can travel from a height of over 14,000 feet, the highest point in the U.S., to a depth of over 200 feet below sea level, the lowest point in the U.S. Hughes comments, quote, What a difference. One place was the top of the world, the other was the bottom. One place was perpetually cool, the other place relentlessly hot. One place was full of life, the other place full of death. As strong as that contrast is in the physical realm, I suggest it's even a stronger one in the spiritual realm. In Ephesians 2, Paul begins by saying, all of us began in Death Valley. You began your life in spiritual Death Valley. And through Christ, you've been taken to the very mountaintop. Let's see how he unpacks this here uh, in these verses. First of all, he reminds us again in no uncertain terms of what it is like when we were apart from Christ. Apart from Christ. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Three aspects of being born in Death Valley. First of all, we were spiritually dead. Before a person comes to faith in Christ, he or she is spiritually dead. Now, the interesting thing about it is this. You look very much alive, but you're only alive really on the outside. You're dead on the inside. You see, the basic problem that humankind has isn't being out of harmony with its environment, but with its creator. Your biggest, most basic problem isn't that you have no relationship with others. It's you have no relationship with God. And in light of that, you're dead on the inside. That carries all kinds of implications. One of the privileges I have in being a pastor for over three decades is that I've been able to experience an awful lot of births here at the church. In fact, I experienced some of your births here at this church. And that's always a thrill to celebrate life. It's also one of my responsibilities to experience death. And scores of time I've been there when the plugs were pulled and when the screen flatlined. And to think, I've just watched a person pass into eternity. In grappling with this idea of witnessing death, I've got a point to make, and I don't want to be insensitive here, but I think it's germane to this text. I found that dead people have several things in common. One of the first is they have a total inability to respond to any sort of stimuli. They can't feel, they can't talk, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't taste. In the same way, when you're spiritually dead on the inside, you can't respond to any spiritual stimuli. 
You can't experience the love of God, the joy of God, the peace of God. You can't experience the guidance of God, the wisdom of God, the security of God. Why? Because your receptors are dead. You're dead at the soul level. And as such, you struggle. The second thing I've noticed about spiritually dead people is, in fact, all dead people, they can't do anything about it. You can't bring yourself back to life. You can't reanimate or re-energize yourself. You're helplessly, irreversibly, it would disappear, dead. Such is the case when you're spiritually dead. You can't do anything about it. You can't somehow will yourself back to life on the inside. You're dead. It would seem to be a very grim picture. In a sense, those who were spiritually dead, right now zombies are the big thing, right? They're like zombies. They're dead and don't know it. You're just dead. You're unable to respond to anything of God or anything of good. You're going through the motions, unable to make any sense out of your existence. Dead. Gets worse. The second aspect that we learn here is that we're bound by sin. If verse 1 reads, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions, verse 2 continues, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. People like to think, I'm in charge of my life. I'm my own person. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, that sort of thing. I'm in charge of me. Yet Paul says here, that is not true at all. Again, you don't know it, but you're not free. You are bound in the worst possible way. You are captivated by world think that permeates our culture, but more than that, you are a slave to the prince of the air, Satan and his demons. You may think your chains are long, but typically they're only long enough to strangle yourself. And you find yourself chained to greed and to glands, to disobedience and to willfulness and to selfishness. And you wonder at times, what's wrong with me? You are in fact a slave. You're a slave to self, to Satan, and to sin. Those who are without Christ are bound and blind. And as such, it's a grim situation. Is it any wonder that Paul wrote Romans 6.23, the weight is of sin is death. We're walking dead people bound in sin. But here's the deal. Like prisoners who are going to face a judge, it gets worse yet. Verse 3, take a look. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. For those who were still spiritually dead and bound in their sins, they now will face the ultimate horrifying moment. It says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once. And after this comes the judgment. I'd suggest to you, the Bible's clear, without Christ, you're destined for hell. 
And we hate to read that. In this age of political correctness, we didn't want to consider the fact that a loving God could really send someone to hell. You say, well, my God is a God of love. Well, so is my God. But love is not the only quality that he has. He's also good, perfectly good, holy, if you will. And as such, he cannot be perfectly good and allow for something that is not perfectly good. It goes against his very character. He has a revulsion against it because it's against his nature. If you're not perfectly good, you're not good enough. Now again, we struggle with this because our idea of good basically is across a spectrum. Obviously, there are the really bad people, right? There are the terrorists and the axe murderers. There's Osama bin Laden and there's Adolf Hitler. They're really bad people. You can see why they go to hell, but over here you've got pretty good people. A decent dad, a good provider, a little league coach, a music teacher, great neighbor. Now they'd be the first to say, I know I'm not perfect, but the fact of the matter is, in God's perfect standard, imperfection is not allowed. And when you stop and think about it, those in the latter group are no less in trouble as those in the former group. Again, we think, but but if I do enough good stuff, doesn't my good stuff somehow outweigh my bad stuff? The fact of the matter is, no, it doesn't. No amount of good stuff can deal with bad stuff. And that bad stuff stands before God. And as such, it's worth a sentence of death. Eternally. Regarding this pastor and author, John MacArthur writes, Relational goodness is a step in the right direction, but a hundred thousand such steps cannot bring a person any nearer to God because it is a sinner's condition of sinfulness, not his particular sins that separate him from God. His particular acts of goodness cannot reconcile him to God. That's pretty bad news, wouldn't you say so? You're dead, you're bound, and you're destined for hell. Fortunately, the story is not done being written yet. You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. Dave will be back to continue his message in just a moment. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you are, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and then help others find us by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. If you'd like to support us in this ministry, just go to davedesellministries.org and click on the donate button. Dave DeSell Ministries is here to resource everyday pastors as they seek to equip everyday people to become everyday disciples. One of the ways that we do that is through coaching. In the coaching relationship, pastors and leaders have the opportunity to receive individualized, practical guidance from Dave on the issues they're facing in life and ministry. These one-on-one sessions offer a safe place to discuss some of the unique challenges you're facing with someone who's a bit further down the road of ministry. DDM also offers coaching groups, bringing the coaching relationship into the small group setting. It's a personal space where conversation can take place, relationships can be formed, and hope and help discovered. If you'd like to learn more about coaching, go to davedesellministries.org or email us at info 
at davedesellministries.org. Now, here's Dave with the rest of today's teaching. Now the Apostle Paul, in a brilliant display of literary as well as spiritual wisdom, reverses every one of those, and now he says, but when you are united with Christ, all three of those are reversed. So what does it mean to be united with Christ? Verses four to six. He continues, but, you may want to circle that in your Bibles, but all those things notwithstanding, those things in fact are true. However, that's not the end of the story, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming riches he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You talk about a change of altitude from Death Valley to Mount Whitney. From the desert to the mountaintop, everything reversed. We had been spiritually dead, right? Now in Christ, we've been made what? Alive. You're made alive. You're made alive. We could not do anything about our spiritual deadness. But Jesus gave us life. Jesus, in his sacrifice on the cross, absorbed our death. When we are united to him in faith, we're made alive. Now, something's happened on the inside. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about, because you remember just recently you were dead. But now you think, I can begin to respond to spiritual stimuli. I found a joy and a peace and a love that I didn't have before. I've begun to understand Comfort and security and wisdom and guidance that I didn't know before. Why? Because you've been made alive. You're no longer a walking dead person. You've been animated by Christ. Second, while we had been mired in sin and chained to Satan, now in Christ, we're raised up. We're raised up. He raised us up with Christ. When I picture this, I picture, in a sense, the Lord seeing us bound in sin, chained by Satan, coming down, releasing us, and lifting us up. Just lifting us up. You're no longer in the muck and the mire. You're no longer chained. You're free. He's lifted us up. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. Moreover, and this is the best part, we are now seated in heaven. We're seated in heaven. Now, This idea has already been alluded to in Ephesians. Look back to chapter 1 and verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. Paul's talking about power here. He says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Okay, got the picture? In heaven, God the Father, and his right hand, It's Jesus, seated, right? Now look at chapter two and beginning in verse six. And God raised us up with Christ and what? Seated us with him. So God the Father, the Son is seated next to him, and then positionally and practically, we're seated up there with Christ. Now if you're seated with God in Christ, you're above every power and principality. 
You're above anything that would seek to thwart your movement forward or to bring you down. One day you'll be there literally. But for now, you're seated there positionally. Now you'll understand why later on Paul says you can pray against powers and principalities with real authority. You can pray for people's healing. You can pray for people's deliverance. You can pray for situations to be reversed. Why? Because you're seated with Christ. And he's above all that stuff. What an amazing picture of what it means to be in Christ versus apart from Christ. When you begin to grasp the immensity of this, it causes a question to come to me, and that's this. Why would God do this? Why in the world would God do this? Why would God go to such lengths, even to the loss of his own son, to rescue spiritually dead, sin-entrenched, hell-bound people? It's not, friends, because beneath it all, we're so wonderful. It's because above it all, he's so wonderful. Notice what it says in verse 4. You may want to underline it. Because of his great love for us. Because of his great love for us. God, who's rich in mercy, the love wasn't simply theoretical. It was practical. Showed us kindness, rich in mercy. What greater picture do you need to see and that God sent his son to sin-stained, spiritually dead, hell-bound people. Soul that sins shall die. Someone's going to die. And Jesus said, I will. I will. And the fact of the matter is, the tears in his eyes, the thorns on his head, the lash and bleeding back, the nails in his hands and feet, the stab wound in his side are mute evidence to the words, I love you this much. I can't bear the thought that you would stay spiritually dead, chained in sin, and destined for hell. So I'll go all the way to the cross for you. Friends, this is the greatest news the world has ever known. Here's the amazing thing. I love verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? Throughout all of eternity, as a trophy of grace, you and I will be paraded through all the universe. And the angels will shake their head in awe as these redeemed sons and daughters of God are his legacy. To be celebrated and to celebrate him for all eternity. That's amazing. He summarizes this beautiful passage of scripture in verses 8 to 10. He says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are not saved because you earn it, you merit it, you're religious enough, you're good enough. In fact, you're so dead, there's only one thing that you could do. One thing. You were so chained that there was only one thing you could do. You were given the capacity to say, help me, Jesus. I need you. I'm dead. I'm chained. I'm bound for hell. I need what only you can give me. I need to be made alive. I need to be freed from my chains. And I need to be seated in heaven. And the Bible's real clear. 
Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Are you whoever? Then you're not beyond this. But there's one thing that only you can do. Only you can say that. I can't say, help me, Jesus, for you. Your wife, sir, cannot say, help me, Jesus, for you. And your friend cannot say, help me, Jesus, for you. And your kids cannot say, help me, Jesus, for you. (coughs) The terrible, wonderful privilege and responsibility is yours alone. And if you don't want it, he will not force himself on you. He will not. Because in reality, he doesn't send anybody to hell. You send yourself. You send yourself. Because he has done everything necessary to get you to heaven. God's amazing grace. I love the way this acrostic puts it. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. He'll get all the glory and rightly so. I could do nothing except say help and neither could you. The question remains, will you ask for it? Thank you so much for joining us for the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. If you'd like more information on how you can begin a relationship with Christ, or you just want to let Pastor Dave know how much this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's Word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.